This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome back to The Slow Work. My guest today is Mike Cosper. You may know him as the host and creator of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, but he is also the senior director of the podcast at CT, also a writer and musician. I first met Mike through music. I think the gig was in Chicago and we were part of the band that was gathered to sing new and old hymns. Our friendship goes back a long way and I hope you enjoy this conversation. You wear many hats in your work. (laughs) You do a lot of different things. What is Mm -hmm. right in front of you today or where are you coming from? Yeah, so I just got back from a trip to D.C. I spoke to a group of pastors about the danger of charisma Mm -hmm. and uh, the seduction of charisma. What is it like to put together a talk for pastors around charisma? That's really intriguing. Like as a starting point, is that like writing a sermon? It feels a little lower stakes to be in a teaching environment, especially mm-hmm. if there's like a Q&A. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that environment. Yeah. And so so it's, it's in a sense, it's more like writing a paper mm-hmm. or writing an article or something. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of approach it that way. And there's, there's subtle differences in the way you think about illustrations and trying to add a joke where you uh-huh. can or whatever. But yeah, I mean, for the, for the most part, it's the same kind of looking for the research that matters and the ideas that matter that maybe they haven't been exposed to or haven't thought about before. Mm. You know, to me, the whole phenomenon of charisma is is so important because of sort of this deeper problem of culture of loneliness. Mm. People feel isolated from one another. They're this idea of being alone together that doesn't matter how many people are around because we don't have a sense of rootedness in tradition and in spirituality mm-hmm. and family and whatever, we're, we're looking for that kind of meaning. And a, and a charismatic person who comes along and says, I can give this to you mm-hmm. is incredibly persuasive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember hearing Sherry Turkle years ago at, at a conference and she was talking about, I think her book is called that same title, Alone Together. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I think about it now because it hasn't been that many years ago, but it was we're so much even deeper in now than we were then Mm -hmm. as far as isolation from one another and the last few years of the pandemic and the separation have just intensified both our need for real conversation and even respectful disagreement, but also just the complete breakdown of how to do that anymore. Yeah. Hannah Arendt was writing about that in 1950. She (laughs) said, this is where we're headed. And there's this breakdown of, of rootedness an identity. And mm. when people don't have that sense, they're they're just far more susceptible. I mean, for her, it was trying to understand why everything about sort of the Western moral tradition collapsed in Europe and mm. made the way for the Nazis and for Stalinism and all that. But, you know, her warnings were, there are other ways this stuff will manifest and mm. sort of destroy our humanity. And yeah. whether it's consumerism or entertainment or whatever else, like we're looking for that thing that'll give us a sense of movement and meaning. And yeah, yeah, it's incredibly seductive. Yeah. You, as you're talking about even forming those questions for this group or for this conversation about the danger of charisma, I, I am reminded of something that 
I've noticed about you and your work is that you notice things that other people don't notice. So almost like mm-hmm. a, you're not a comedian, but in a way, a comedian is pointing out things <laughs> as commentary. Um, it right. makes you really good at interviews and conversation. And I'm curious if this was something that you learned or was kind of a natural part of your personality. Did you, as mm-hmm. a little kid, like, did you have some influences that helped you to just pay attention and notice things? Or did you read things that really mm-hmm. made you wonder or ask those kind of questions? Like, why does this oh, what work an interesting this way? Question. What, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to think about it. I was a kid who had obsessions, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was like a window of several years where I wanted to know everything about whales, right? Mm-hmm. Like I had every Jacques Cousteau book on the planet. And then- You were a collector you know, too? That, Did you like gather all the materials? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, Research. Yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, and then it was like birds of prey mm-hmm. and then it was whatever from, from <laughs> then on. And so, so I've always kind of loved ideas. And I think one of the things that shapes the way I look at culture and look at the church is that I'm really, I'm really interested in sort of the world of social theory, mm-hmm. which is more about trying to understand like what's the narrative that shapes our world today. It's, you know, it's not sort of mm-hmm. the science of sociology of like, well, you have to have all this data or whatever. You're really looking at intellectual traditions and and the way ideas seem to permeate particular moments. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, Arendt is a big was a big influence mm-hmm. for me on that. Michel Foucault was an influence for me on mm-hmm. that. And these were these writers and thinkers that I got exposed to at 19, 20, 21 and just and that's not to say that I sign on for every single mm-hmm. you know idea, certainly not Foucault. Mm-hmm. But I, I think their way of looking at the world and asking questions in terms of what's the story that got us here is is really important. I first heard about the Rise and Fall podcast from several different places. It seemed like all at once I was hearing it from different friends listening to it. And I think it touched a nerve for a lot of us who have had experiences both in the church and in other organizations or institutions where we have been disillusioned or we're trying to figure out what's true. And what I love about Mike's work is he's a student of perspective, the way he asks questions and gives a thoughtful review of what is going on. Like, what does it mean that we see things from a lot of different angles? And I think that the the rise and fall of Mars Hill brought a level of journalism to some of the things that happen in the church that we would rather just pretend did not happen. And I think that is a courageous thing to do. And it's also just had this ripple effect, not just that things would be exposed, but unto the end that those things could be healed and brought back both into the light and into the truth. I think the narrative of the Mars Hill podcast, it felt like something new and it felt like something that requires a lot of courage to look at this story. And there's there's the part of you that doesn't want to really, I don't want to look at it. It's like, I don't want to see this for what it is. I think being able to hold these things and see one issue or one episode or one thing that happened from a lot of different perspectives, it takes a lot of humility and a lot of courage to do it. Hmm. Are there a lot of people that have resisted that? I mean, obviously there are, you know, two and a half million downloads of people that (laughs) want to hear it, but do you get some heat from this too? I would imagine. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's way more comfortable for us to, uh, to tell stories about like, okay, here were the heroes, Mm -hmm. here were the villains here are the black hats, here are the white hats. And I, I think one of the more interesting characters on the podcast is a guy named Sutton Turner. I kind of waited 
fairly late in the series to actually reach out to him and talk to him because it was rare you got somebody to raise his name where they didn't have something very angry or negative to say. He had left he'd left a lot of wreckage mm-hmm. behind him. Mm-hmm. And um you know and then you you sit down with this guy and he starts to tell his story and number one he starts to talk about how this shattered his own life and his own sense of self-identity mm-hmm. and that he you know, over time saw sort of his own reflection and what he had done and it wrecked him. It kind of mm-hmm. ruined him, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's again, like it's it's this thing where if, if you can get someone to really talk to you, mm-hmm. it's really hard to not over time develop some empathy for him. Mm-hmm. And it was ultimately it was kind of easy with Sutton because he was this character who was doing what everyone wished you know, Mark would do or that you would want someone in that circumstance to do. He was pursuing people and saying, how did I hurt you? How can I make things right with you? You know, and mm. so I think that was one of the big surprises. I, I think from the outside, everybody has a stakeholding on an ideological perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what we had was people who were on sort of this very conservative end of the spectrum thought we were being too hard on mm-hmm. complementarians and re- reform theology and all this kind of stuff. But then people who were on the very progressive end of the spectrum were like, you guys are softballing this thing. You're going so easy on Mark. And I was like, you can't we're, win. We're going easy. Can't win for losing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's I I think it's because we're just uncomfortable with complexity. You know, mm. people are complex. Like it's a completely true story that Mark regularly yeah. went out of his way to do things that were incredibly generous and selfless to single moms in his church. Yeah. It broke his heart to hear those stories. Mm. It's also true that he ruined lives mm. of people who were close mm. to him. And both of those things can be true in an incredible conflict. We we don't have to twist the positive thing into a negative in order to to make sense of it. It's, mm. you know, with the Chesterton line, sinners and saints and sacks of meat, you know, yeah. that's, that's who we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is an invitation for all of us in a sense to own up to our own complexity. And if we're talking about isolation, if we're isolated from one another, it's really hard to become uh, just aware of your own blind spots and confessional. But sunlight is the best disinfectant. Mm-hmm. What is the role of confession in the purity of the church, like in our lives? Mm-hmm. Like, do we do we need to be confessional people? Is that what's missing? And is that partly why like deconstruction is just like spreading like wildfire? Because mm-hmm. no one's really <laughs> saying mm-hmm. like, man, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, and I'm going to be specific about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think truly we'd lack the vocabulary for mm. it. You know, it, if we think of the life and practices of the church as, you know, they're, they're all formative. Where in our evangelical culture in the past 30 years has the role of lament and uh, repentance not in a broad, oh, I'm a sinner mm-hmm, sense, right. but in the particularity of like, I've wounded people, I've I've wounded God, I've offended, I've offended you with my sin. Yeah, those are just not a deep part of the practices. And then layer on top of it, you know, I, I look at the youth group culture of the '90s and the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to be the like the generation that's driving the deconstruction conversation, mm-hmm. and 
and they were sold a bill of goods about hmm. the victorious Christian life and right. how great sex would be and marriage would be and your family would be and your career would be and everything else. And, you know, even if you're persecuted and you're shot, you're going to be happy to do it because you're doing it for the Lord. I mean, it's all, it was all this milieu yeah. and it's like people grow up and their marriages fall apart or they're clinically depressed or, you know, they, mm -hmm. whatever comes about. And it's like, well, wait, this is, it's, it's like, where's my flying car? You know, it's, where's my victorious <laughs> Christian life? Where's Marty right? McFly? That's right. Uh -huh. <laughs> you talked about friends and seeing things firsthand with the Mars Hill story had like hours and hours of recorded material, but this was sort of a slow burn, right? Telling a story like mm -hmm. that one, did it feel, were there moments for you that it seemed like, man, this is probably never going to come out into the light. Like this is just going to go on and <laughs> It's Psalm 73, mm. like, they're going to get away with this, you know? But I don't know that it ever felt like we would never get it out, right? Mm -hmm. But it it did feel – it was a weirdly powerful spiritual experience to make this show. And I'd be in this office, mm -hmm. but I'm on East Coast time. Most of these folks are on West Coast time. Mm -hmm. A lot of the interviews happened in the evening. So it's like my family would go to bed. And I'd come in here and the house was pitch dark and I'd sit here from nine, 10 o'clock at night until one, two, three in the morning, mm -hmm. you know, with people telling me stories about the very best and the very worst moments of their mm -hmm. lives. And there were, you know, there was more than one moment where you just really had the feeling of like, this is holy ground. Mm -hmm. Like this is sacred space, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm trying to just be a journalist and not pastor them, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is an impulse that runs deep yeah, from other experiences. But um, just the fact that someone would feel safe enough to tell those stories, I think was really, was really powerful. And I think even if the podcast hadn't come out, mm -hmm. the fact that somebody showed up and knocked on their door and said, your story matters and I want to hear mm -hmm. it, may have been as big a difference as anything. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. as an author like your first book was 2013 is that right i think that's right yeah writing for me felt like a an important thing vocationally mm -hmm. like right away mm -hmm. right when i started to kind of allow myself to do it but it's always been as any writer will tell you like it's always a side project you know? <laughs> until you get into oprah's book club yeah. it's always a side project <laughs> well. but but yeah i mean it's one of those things where i think that rainer murray or rilke book where he he talks about letters to a young poet. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. he says, like, you know you're a writer if if you wake up and you have to write mm -hmm. and you feel like you're not breathing if you don't do it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of truth to that for me. If I just were podcasting for a living and there was no money in writing, I think I'd still probably be writing. So I'm so glad you are because I, I really do enjoy your writing. And mm. the, the first book, Rhythms of Grace, 
like my way in was like, Hey, this book needed to be written. Like this puts some words around things that are just are vague for a lot of people mm-hmm. leading worship or in this space. But then I have to say one of my favorite ones is Faith Among the Faithless, this narrative mm-hmm. story of Esther. And curious what sparked that one, or if you could tell us a little bit about that, <laughs> about this book, because I just, I really yeah. love it. Yeah, it's funny. So we, we were doing a sermon series at the church, and it was kind of one of those things where it was like we were doing Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, and I was on the preaching team, and it was like nobody wanted to do Esther. It was mm-hmm. just kind of funny. And so I, I think I was like low man on the totem pole for that team at the time. And they're like, all right, we'll give it to Mike. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was the first time I'd really spent significant time with it. And I just fell in love with the story. I mean, it's just, it is, I would argue like it's the most exciting, interesting, well-written narrative in the whole Bible. You know, it's, it's Shakespearean in the yeah. sort of the backstabbing and the, the, the sense of justice that comes about and everything. And so the more I spent time with it, the more I loved it. I, I preached that, that sermon series. And then, and then it was like a couple years later, I was invited to preach at the chapel at Union University. Mm-hmm. And I went down there and I preached that sermon. That was, just felt like what I was supposed to do. And the guy that invited me down was Greg Thornberry. And afterwards, he was like, that's a book. Like, hmm. I've never heard anybody talk about it that way. Yeah. And so that idea sat in my head for a long time. And um, you know, I, I put the proposal together and pitched it to a number of places and, you know, people rejected it and mm-hmm. they were like, a lot of people rejected it cause they were like, literally, oh, that's a girl's book. <laughs> like <laughs> nobody wants to read a girl's book written by a man, but you know, Thomas, the, Thomas Nelson picked it up. Like the and, book of scripture. Yeah. Like when you just think of right. Esther, because that's supposed to be, right. that's fascinating. Wow. Right. And if, and if you go look, even in like commentary series mm-hmm. that, They'll pick a female scholar mm-hmm. to write the commentary on the Book of Esther. Yeah, and that's not to diminish the scholarship of of it's a funny world those, we live in. <laughs> those authors. Yeah, they're yeah. they're incredible. But to me, this was a story for everybody. In 2017, the Philos Project invited a group of artists to go tour Jerusalem and Israel and to spend some time hearing all sorts of different perspectives on the history and culture and some of the conflicts in the region. And on that trip, it was really, it was a really shaping time because not only are you seeing all these biblical places and names that I had been familiar with from childhood, but also just getting to try to wrap your mind around so many of the layers of perspective and so many of the challenges of peacemaking in a region that has been so highly contested over the years. We had an artist trip, a group of artists that went to Israel and was that 2017 with Philos? I think so, yeah. And curious how that experience kind of brought some stories to life. Was that your first trip to Israel? Had you been? It was my second. second? Okay. I'd, I'd been, I think, two years before I, I had gone with a, another group. Okay. Um, and are there things that have come to life for you after or because of those days spent seeing firsthand and... Yeah. Um, and are there particular memories you have? Do you remember the day we went to Mount Precipice mm-hmm. outside of Nazareth? Mm-hmm. And if you were looking out of off of the precipice, Nazareth is behind you to the right. And to the left was Mount Tabor, mm-hmm. which is also like historically, traditionally known as the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm-hmm. And 
for me, the image of Mount Tabor is just like burned into my memory because it's this weird rock formation and it's just like this round thing sitting on a plane. It just makes no sense why it's there. Yeah. And anyway, the story of the transfiguration had really captured my imagination over the years and that image has become really powerful. And I could I could talk about it all day though. I mean, the being in that geography is People always say, like, when you go, it just changes the way you think about the scriptures. And mm-hmm. and it's true. I mean, it, it really does. Yeah. For me, it's had a time release. Mm. That image, yeah, at someone, our guide was telling us about it when we were up there and kind of pointing things out in the geography. But I, it's interesting because the juxtaposition of something that's so wildly unimaginable, like the transfiguration, with mm-hmm. like a physical hill you know Mm -hmm. which wasn't even a really big hill but from the the way Mm -hmm. it kind of shoots up out of nowhere it looks like a big a big hill right it's it's not like what you'd think of as a big mountain in no it's uh 1800 feet so yeah and i mean and most of the quote-unquote mountains in israel are pretty pretty small Mm -hmm. you know the whole scene is 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 wild because you stand at mount precipice which is this place where the people of Nazareth took Jesus to throw him off mm-hmm. when he made a comment about the prophets being fulfilled. So it's like you have this overlook and again, like behind you is Nazareth. But then off to the, I guess it would be to the southwest is this plain where as recently as 1939, mm-hmm. there were there were battles, there was war. And all the way back through history, you know, wars have taken place on those plains and Mm-hmm. Um, there's a valley in there called Megiddo, which is where you get the word Armageddon and, you know, mm-hmm. the last battle on earth is supposed to happen there and all this kind of stuff. And so it's just, it, it feels surreal to be in this space. And the thing I always think about as well is like Nazareth isn't some tourist town, mm-hmm. you know, it's like there are hospitals and there are, yeah. we ate at a kebab shop, you know, in yeah. Nazareth that night. And it's just a normal place where life has gone on for for all these years too. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's a, we talked about uh, the complexity in human relationships and situations, and it felt like the land in that place, Israel holds Mm -hmm. a lot of complexity and there were things Mm -hmm. like overlaid and happening simultaneously, different perspectives, different ways of seeing, different ways of experiencing, which is also a place where there's a tremendous amount of conflict because that complexity is baked into the trees and the land and the, you know, the blood that's been spilled and, mm-hmm. and the transfiguration and and everything holy that also right. happens in, right. in those things. The memories and the parts of that that come up in my own mind and imagination, there's a lot there that's, that I hope will still, will continue yeah. to, you know, open up. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. 
They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is a spot in Jerusalem. It's actually the destination of pilgrimage for so many people, for so many Christians, because it is believed to be the site where Jesus was crucified. And this room, we talk a little bit about this in the conversation, but just to see the reflections of culture that are coming from different places and how all of that comes together to just bring something that I would not have expected. And it makes me think, we have to expand our imagination to really think about what it might be when we all join together. That there really will be a unified story and it probably won't look like what we imagined. I'm, I'm always curious, what's your memory or like how do you think back on the experience of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? What, was that the one, what, there were so many little churches, is that the one that was that's in the one, Bethlehem? No, that's the one in Jerusalem where the the site of the cross and resurrection. Oh yeah, were. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, that the, one, the big one, the big one. That one actually <laughs> was really not what I expected more than any of the others. So some of the places, if they're like the one in Bethlehem that I remember that was near where the shepherds would have heard the angels singing. You know that that felt like mm-hmm. okay, there's there's a chapel here and this kind of makes sense as a monument of this place and it still feels pastoral like it feels like you're kind mm. of out in the <laughs> but mm. that one the side of the crucifixion it was so layered with this is actually kind of a beautiful thing but the cultural overlay that even just aesthetically was a present in the room the smell mm-hmm. like the dark lighting and there's mm-hmm. there's a rock there there's like earth but it's so covered over by all these other elements that have been built up around it which if you think about that, I guess that is such a picture of like the church that we can visibly see now, right? The mm-hmm. Like the present church is like, man, it's a lot of things and it's not really what I thought this is going to look like. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not like a man on a cross on a hill. It's like, it's it's everything that, that so many different cultures have found to show beauty in their different mm-hmm. interpretations and in different ways. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. beautiful, but also just gives you pause because it's not just your own aesthetic that's coming to that. Mm-hmm. That's evident in that place. What did you think of totally. it? I love it. And it is, it is strange because of what you end up observing <laughs> and what's happening around you. Right. The two images for me, and I I think this was the first trip that I went on. It wasn't the trip with y'all. The, the two images that stuck out for me is I remember we walk in and when you walk in the front door, there's a slab, uh, like a marble slab on the floor that is traditionally understood to be the slab where Jesus' body was laid. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking in and, and just kind of standing over it and there's all these candles burning and this very old woman wearing like a shawl over her hair and stuff, she walks up and she pulls out this white plastic grocery bag. And she starts pulling out rosaries and rubbing them on the slab and then stuffing them in her pockets, just one after another after another. Mm. 
And that, I mean, that image is like blazoned in my mind. <laughs> and I'm like, in the moment I start to sort of criticize it, like I feel like, no, I can't criticize this. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I could theologize about it, but it feels inappropriate. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, the, so then the next thing you kind of do if you're sort of touring the place is you walk up this sort of winding stair to the shrine. It's like the Shrine of the Cross, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. And there's like a low ceiling and there's tons of incense. Yes. And, it's really, that's know. what I meant by like the fragrance. It's kind of overwhelming yeah. um, in that space. And so I walk up there and there's all these monks and they're chanting and there's all these people in line. A lot of worshipers will wait in this line and then you, you're allowed forward and there's a spot on the floor that's marked as like, here's where the cross was, which is probably iffy. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, but I just I didn't do that. I just went and stood in the back of the room. Uh-huh. And the, the thing that stuck out to me there that I do know what to do with and, and I'll try not to lose it. This this guy, this hulking, huge sort of Slavic looking guy. And his girlfriend or wife, I would assume, they both like kind of – they kind of walk up and stand in front of me. And I noticed them because I was like, y'all, you're blocking my view, you know. <laughs> but I mean this dude, like he could have played a villain in a Bond movie. He was just mm-hmm. shredded, ripped and stuff. <laughs> and then his he's got this very beautiful model-looking girlfriend. And she's wearing tight, ripped jeans and this spaghetti strap, you know, tank top or whatever. The juxtaposition was profound because mm-hmm. of these monks to my left and this mm-hmm. these these two in front of me to my right, and they both kneel down to pray. And then what? Then they stand up, and he stands up and he turns to walk away, and she stands up, and she was wearing really dark eye makeup, mm-hmm. and her face was just covered mm-hmm. with tears. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, it was you just saw the power of that place. And for me, I just saw the power of the place and the power of that story on her face in a way that I've never, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll never forget. I've been thinking in the last, I don't know how long, but recently about complicated stories, you know, and what it Mm -hmm. is to want things to change or to lament over things as they are to watch at the most base level, just trying to, respond to what comes at us in the news, you know, and, and I think that, that this may be something that I've known since the beginning of my faith journey, but this reminder that there's not some prerequisite for what it means to be like Mm. awakened to the truth of God and to be moved by Mm. it. And there's not something that there's no calculation for that. Right. And God can do that at any time. Like he can move our hearts and he can, Mm like open something up within us that's been lodged there for a very long time. And you can do that for anybody at any time. I think um, it changes how I pray about, you know, it's like when you cry out to God, like, why, why are you allowing this sort of kind of hate crimes to happen? Why are these things happening? And then realizing like, it, it just isn't this binary thing where you can just say, Oh, it's either this or that. It's like, man, mm-hmm grace moves in and it's, and it disrupts everything around it. And that's what we're banking on, you know, where we, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's why mm-hmm. we're here in the first place. And then I think it's my hope that even in these confessional stories that are hard to tell, that they would be heard as an invitation and not as like, and not as entertainment, you know, it's not, I mean, mm-hmm. 
and we're wired for story. That's why the Esther story does what it does, you know, even if God's name is not mentioned. You're like a sage telling the good news of grace in all these different forms. And I'm really grateful mm-hmm. that you're doing the work that you're doing. So That's really generous. Thanks, yeah. Sandra. That means a lot. There is a lot that you can experience in a book or through a search on the internet. But there's something different when you're able to experience it in real time. I think about a description of honey or or a blurb or write up about a restaurant and you can kind of get the idea, but you don't really understand it until you're in the place and you're able to immerse yourself in that experience. And I think so much of what happens when we travel is that you get a front row seat and you get to take it in for what it is. And in those times, all the cultural ideas that you may have had or the the assumptions that you may have about people that are different than you are or have different perspectives, they are really put to the test because you, you get to take it in in a new way. In the complexities of our stories, we have to slow down long enough to see them for what they are. And even though it's a little bit redundant to say it, this is the slow work. We keep saying it, and that is the theme, that we slow down to hear from one another and to take a deep dive to see things for what they are and to be able to move forward. The Slow Work is a production of Christianity Today. Executive produced by Mike Cosper, produced by Luke Bronner and Azure Phelps, edited and mixed by Dan Phelps, original music by Tyler Chester, graphic design by Chris Bennett, and I'm your host, Sandra McCracken. Thanks again for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.